and reading, at their very best, are a social experience. Whether it be a book club, a poetry slam, or the production of a play, words are meant to be shared. I'm your host, Amy. And I'm your host, Carrie. We've been in a book club together for over a decade and enjoy talking about what we're reading, but in so many ways, we are opposites. Carrie is a cat lover, but I'm a dog nut. Amy loves a good party, while I prefer to wear my fuzzy socks while introverting on the couch. But books are the tie that binds. Each week, we have fun conversations with interesting people about how books and reading influence their lives. We will find out what books are on their nightstands and ask them about five things that make them who they are. We invite you to learn more about the many perks of being a book lover. This week, we traveled to eastern Kentucky to the town of Moorhead in our quest to explore cool, independent bookstores in our region. Moorhead is home to a little over 7,000 residents and Moorhead State University. The university, as well as the regional medical center in town, give the community a diverse makeup. And its location inside Daniel Boone National Forest and the head of the Sheltoe Trace Trail make it a tempting destination for folks who like to hike, hunt, fish, and soak up nature. Our guest, Susan Thomas, is a managing partner and owner of Coffee Tree Books and the Fuzzy Duck Coffee Shop, which have been a family business for over 20 years. It has morphed several times and is now housed in the town's old single-screen movie theater on Main Street. They have transformed the space to include a coffee shop in the old concession area, event space at the stage, and a business office in the old projector room, not to mention everything you would expect to see in a bookstore. But they've been creative with their space and have included a store within a store. Coffee Tree is also a destination for locals looking for supplies for fiber arts like knitting. They carry high-quality yarns and classes for knitters. Susan is a knitter herself and wanted to offer products she used to have to travel over an hour to purchase. And while there weren't initially many knitters in Moorhead, Susan and others have nurtured a whole crop of townspeople anxious to learn and create. Susan tells us why books and yarn aren't the strangest store-within-a-store concept in town, why she has an affinity for books about bees, and why moving back to her hometown after 16 years in Nashville is a decision she hasn't once regretted. Our guest this week is somebody who's out a little ways in Kentucky or a little bit further from Louisville. Her name is Susan Thomas, and she's one of the owners of the family-owned Coffee Tree Books in Moorhead, Kentucky. Susan, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. So full disclosure, I used to live in Moorhead, where Susan is the managing partner at Coffee Tree Books, and it was always one of my favorite places in town to go. And when we were moving there, it's a small town, and I was a little nervous about moving to a small town, but when I saw that there was an independent bookstore, I thought, okay, I'll, I'll be able to do this. This will be just fine. So uh, for those who don't know, Moorhead is a small town in eastern Kentucky, but it's also a college town, home to Moorhead State University. So tell us a little bit how your family landed in Moorhead originally. My parents are both from Kentucky, but my father, he taught at the university for years, and they liked Moorhead, and they stayed. And so you grew up in Moorhead. I did. So what what kind of reader were you as a kid? What kind of things did you like to read? Or did you like to read? I did like to read. I, I was thinking about it. I was sort of a hot and cold reader. You know, I'd, I'd get really into it and then I'd get into something else and I'd go back. One of the first books my grandmother gave me was The Little Princess by Frances Hodgson Burnett. And that was the moment where I thought, I am a reader. This is my thing. But I had an amazing English teacher. And, you know, she turned me on to, to books and I went on to major in English and I've always done something with a book. 
I read The Secret Garden a couple years ago and absolutely loved it, but I never read any of those books when I was a little girl and I thought, I wish I had, but I just never did. So it's interesting that The Little Princess is the one, the one that did it for you. So what kind of things do you like to read now as an adult? Do you have some favorite authors or books? As a bookseller, you know, I'm a bit of an omnivore. It's not really for work. I just like different things. Like I'm right now, I just finished a literary novel and I'm reading a middle grade fantasy book, which is terrific. And I'm halfway through an Irish thriller. But I also read a lot of nonfiction. I read a lot of science and nature. You know, I love Robin Wall Kimmerer's book, Braiding Sweetgrass. I know a lot of people are reading that right now, even though it's been out for a long time. And Helen McDonald's Best for Flights was one of my favorites from last year. I sort of read all over the place. I'm curious, you mentioned one of your English teachers kind of turned you on to books. Were there certain books that flipped the switch in high school? You know, I don't know that there was a certain book, but I do remember thinking that it was the first time that that ideas had really challenged me and I'd had to sort of dig in and work hard. But it it felt so rewarding to really dig deep and, and to see what a book was about on so many different levels. I just found it really satisfying. And then, you know, I have a degree in English and I have a master's in English and I thought I'd go farther, but then I realized that digging kind of took some of the joy out of it. And I went back to, <laughs> to just being a, a frontline reader. So many of our listeners may not have visited Moorhead and don't know anything about it. Can you give them just like a little taste of what the town is like? The town's about, I think it's still about 8,000 people. The university's probably comparable. It's small. It's, it's growing and it's changing. It's changed quite a bit lately. We have a, a young, exciting mayor who's doing cool things. And we have some new businesses that have come to downtown. There's a new brewery. It's an outdoorsy place. You know, we have the lake and the Sheltoe Trace, the northern uh, terminus runs through there. And so I think there are a lot, there's a lot of hiking. And, but it's, it's not like some of the other outdoor areas where there are so many people. It's still a little undiscovered. It's not overgrown yet. Well, you decided to come back there. I did, and I haven't regretted it once. I I like that it's still small and that, you know, I go to a restaurant and I know people and I go to the grocery store and I know people and I like my community. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a diverse community, which seems weird to say, but I think sometimes in cities you live in your pockets. And when you live in a small town, if you have kind of a diverse small town, you run into all kinds of people with different kinds of ideas. So tell us a little bit about the bookstore and its history, you know, in terms of did your family found it or, you know, was it, did it run as a bookstore and then you all bought it? Tell us a little bit about it. We really don't know the day. It was like 1969, 1970-ish, and it was called Bookhaven. I mean, it moved a couple of times and then it became a hallmark and did a few things. And then uh, my parents... Well, I guess it was 26 years ago, retired. And my dad and mom, they decided to open a coffee shop and they opened it in the back of Bookhaven. And so the coffee shop was doing pretty well. And, you know, like three or four years into it, the owners of the bookstore decided they wanted to sell. And my parents were like, well, this is our coffee shop. We have to protect our coffee shop. So they bought the bookstore with another couple. And the other couple, the woman was a librarian. And so she ran it for a few years. And then in 2005, I had been living in Nashville and that's where I met my husband and we had a one-year-old daughter and we moved back. And I worked at the coffee shop for a while and then eventually started working at the bookstore. And then when the woman wanted to retire, it was sort of a a natural fit. So I've been running the bookstore since 2006. 
you have sort of a unique location in town that the store is now in the town's one screen movie theater on Main Street. It was actually also built in the late 60s, but it's a big building. So we in 2010, Moorhead had a big flood. Nashville had a big flood. We had two feet of moving water in our store, which was pretty. Wow. And so we talked to some local businessmen had purchased the old theater and we're trying to figure out what to do with it. And so they were great. They completely renovated it for us and terraced the floors and the way we wanted it. And it was it was tricky putting a coffee shop in the front in in the concession area. My office is the projection room, and you know, in movie theaters or in the old theaters, there would be a stage, which isn't really a stage; it's sort of a fake fake stage. So we still have that and that area down below. That's our event space, and we actually use the fake stage like a stage, and it's got great acoustics. It's a funny building, but um, but it's worked really well. So, so we've been there for ten, almost 10 years. So they tore all the seats out and you just added bookshelves and all yeah. that good stuff? They all tap the, they terrace the floor. So we have two levels. Well, we have three levels. It's pretty neat. Yeah. That's cool. Okay. So the coffee, I'm trying to envision. So the coffee shop is in the front. It is. It's in the concession area. And we totally had to rearrange because of COVID. So we had mm-hmm. tables up there, but now because people have to wait for their food. We've had to take it all in so that people can socially distance while they're waiting on their food. And so we don't have any eat-in dining still. That's been one of the things that with COVID, we've had to just sort of adjust. So you live for a while in Nashville. So you've experienced living in both a large city and a small town. And, you know, people love to, uh, myself included, I love to read books about bookstores and there's lots of fictional books like The Storied Life of A.J. Fickery or The Readers of Broken Wheel Recommend, where the main character moves to a small town and starts a little bookstore. A lot of people fantasize about a life like that. So does it feel that way to you that it's sort of like this, you know, I don't know, uh, romanticized fun- right. version of life? <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, I love those books. I love my job. But, you know, I, I think running a bookstore in a small town, you wear a lot of hats. And so, I mean, certainly there's that truth to it. But I don't know. And, you know, the other thing is my bookstore is kind of big. I mean, I have a lot of employees by the time I have with my coffee shop. And so a lot of times in those books, they have like one person who works for them. So I have a friend who runs a bookstore in Empire, Michigan. That might be her life. I'll have to ask her. <laughs> So what are all the hats that you have to wear? What are the things that you think people don't think about that you have to do in a bookstore that maybe make it not as perfect as people's fantasies about it? Well, it's always funny because we do laugh. I laugh with my colleagues about how you had time to read before you owned a bookstore. But, you know, I think there, I mean, there's just so much that happens. I mean, even a small bookstore, like I have to go through the same number of catalogs that the multiple buyers go through to stock Joseph Beth. The same number of books I have to look at. I mean, there are probably some, you know, a few publishers that I don't care. And, you know, they they may have a, a somewhat broader range, but for the most part, I still have to eyeball all those books. And it's a lot of books to look at, thousands every season to decide what you're going to carry and what you're not going to carry. Um, certainly staffing is always making sure all the hours are covered and everybody's trained and, um, the payroll's right and that you've managed your budget and that you've brought in the sidelines that are appropriate and you haven't brought in too many sidelines and, oh, you have brought in too many sidelines and maybe we should put that on sale or maybe we should, you know. And, you you know, you go through books with the season and then 
and then something changes and suddenly you've got to make sure you add on those extra books to make sure you have the things that people are talking about and reading. And we won't even talk about the coffee shop. <laughs> That's been like crazy with COVID, the list of things that we carry that have been discontinued because businesses have closed or mm-hmm. things that we would special or just regular things that yesterday I learned that um, our hot cocoa mix, the company went out of business because one of our drinks is a mocha joe, which is coffee and chocolate and whipped cream and um, <laughs> got to find a new hot cocoa mix. So, you know, it's just stuff like that. So did you have any experience with business before you started this? Because it sounds like a lot of the things that you're saying are the running the business part. I mean, you know, ideally people think if you run a bookstore, then you just get to, you know, sit and read books and sell books and talk about books, but there's lots of other things involved. I had a couple of experiences early on that helped me. I work for Ingram. Ingram Book Company is the largest book distributor in the world. And I work for Ingram Merchandising Services, which is one of their their small arms. And I was their systems trainer and their tech writer. So I documented their entire system, how their computers worked, and, and then trained everybody to on how to know that. And so that was huge because then I understood the lingo. You know, I learned the language to some extent of accounts payable and accounts receivable and what all, what does all this mean? And, and then I worked, um, I was a partner in a small independent press in Nashville for a little while. And so I did all the books there. And I mean, I did the accounting books as well as helping with the book books. And that was, I mean, amazing experience. I mean, I just, I couldn't replicate that in terms of thinking about how businesses work and, and planning and just sort of knowing. So you've really been on both sides of it. I don't think I realized that you had worked for a small press. Oh, we've laughed. I've done everything you can do with a book except write one. (laughs) I've designed, I've edited, I've sold. I worked at a bookstore in Nashville. I taught taught literature in seventh and eighth grade. Yeah, I did all kinds of things with with books. You know, did the, the layout, marketing. Yes. I can't say all of it was super successful, but I've had a little bit of experience. I've dipped my toe in the water, at least. So the bookstore that you worked in in Nashville, you know, is in a large city and now you're running one in a small town. Do you see any differences between running a bookstore in both of those types of places? Well, what's funny is that the bookstore in Nashville that I worked at was also in a a movie theater. Really? How funny is that? I know it's not there anymore, but it was in the old Belmont theater, but you know, it's all the same. If you like books and if you're interested in books and if you're interested in people, because that's really the business that we're in. So it's all about talking to people and finding what they're interested in and connecting them with the books and the stories that that are going to matter to them. And I mean, that's what I do. I mean, that's the heart of it. And that's and it's the same whether you're in a big city or you're in a small town. So I'm wondering about, because you all are a a small city, and you mentioned having to look through thousands of books in the catalog, so how do you go about determining what types of books you're going to carry in the bookstore? Well, I mean, certainly I have tools at my disposal, and it's, it's a lot easier than when I first started. When I first started, you looked at catalogs, and then you could, actually, when I first started, we didn't even have a point of sale system that told us what we had sold. It was tricky. But that was one of the first things I did is we put in a system where we could track our sales and and then technology is advanced. You know, I can look now and so if there's a new hardcover coming out by an author, I can look and say, how many did I sell 
of his last one and how many. I can also see marketing plans and I can see print runs and things like that. And I talk to reps about what's coming and what's big. But also, you know, I have to know my customers and I have to know my community. So I try to buy things. You know, certainly there are bookstores that do not have a diverse political section because that's not their, their customer base. When we were talking about Moorhead being a little bit diverse, you know, it is it is diverse politically. And so, you know, I try to cover the things that will interest my customers and then take them like another step further. Mm-hmm. Like sometimes I'll get things and I'll think, I can't sell that, but I'm going to put it on the shelf because I think this needs to be represented because people need to start seeing it. Um, and sometimes I'm surprised. We have done, uh, you know, some high fives and some happy dances around when something that's, that really I thought was going to broaden people's horizons or, you know, challenge their thinking and, you know, you see itself and you think, you know, this is why we do this. Hmm. I guess I'd never really thought about bookstores or booksellers making choices to put things in their store that they know might not sell, but they think needs to be there. That's kind of an interesting it's really uh, because like we do not have a large African-American community, but we do have one. I mean, it's small and it's really important. Everybody needs to see their face when they walk mm-hmm. in the store. You know, they mm-hmm. need to know that their, their story is valid. And then people need to read about other people's experiences. I mean, that's part of what reading does. Is it, you know, it teaches you to empathize with somebody I mean, whose life you can't imagine on your own with, without hearing their story. So, yeah, I mean, I think the word that gets thrown around a lot is, you know, it's curated or, and I kind of don't like that word, but it's kind of what we do. We do pick and choose. And it's important, like when I talk to my booksellers, when I hire people, they need to be able to sell a book and talk to people across the spectrum. Everybody needs to feel welcome, mm-hmm. at least in my store. You know, that's what, what we're about. Everyone needs to feel welcome. Everyone needs to feel like they have a place there and that our bookstore is there to serve them. Do you think that there are certain genres that you stock more of than others just because your customer base likes those? Sure. Oh, absolutely. And what's interesting is that as I have been doing this, it has changed. I've been buying long enough that I've, you know, I've watched our our readers and our customers change. When I first started, we sold lots of mass market romance, you know, the smaller paperbacks romance. And then I think a lot of people read that digitally. And so that really fell off a lot and and to the point that, I mean, I carry very few mass markets, but there's been a resurgence in romance and it's more aimed at young women and it's a larger format paperback and it's young professional women. It's not, you know, the romances of old with cover. I mean, it's, it's, (laughs) although what's interesting is, well, I don't know. I mean, sometimes it circles, it just circles back around. And so I watch trends. We sell a lot of fantasy sci-fi. I think that's because we're on a college campus. It just It's interesting to see trends. I have been selling a lot of like tarot cards and witchcraft books in the last, you know, and it's just, I mean, like Wicca. And I think it's a thing that people are interested in. And I've watched those sales just kind of inch up and I'll like throw a few more titles in and, and then I'll watch it. They'll, it'll peter out and, and people will move on to something else. You saying that, and and now I cannot remember where I heard it from. I can't remember if it was a podcast with a writer, but talking about how people want to believe 
like that's just part of the human condition is people want to believe in something that they can't understand or, or they want to figure out things they can't understand. And so is like organized religion has declined. There's been an increase in people becoming more interested in the occult and witchcraft. And I don't know, I think that's fascinating how those trends, both in literature, but also in other things. I heard a TED talk or something and, and, and it was much the same. That it had to do with how evolutionarily we, we are predisposed to believe in in something greater. Mm-hmm. Part of our, from the very beginning, we have always looked to the sky, you know, look for bigger meaning. So do you all carry things specific to Moorhead and the region? Is there an interest among the people that come to your bookstore to learn more about that area? Yes, absolutely. This is an an interesting fun fact about Moorhead. Um, The bloodiest feud in Kentucky was actually in Moorhead in Rowan County. It was not the Hatfields and the McCoys. It was the Martin Tolliver feud. I did not know that. They've converted our old courthouse into an art center. And so they have done, they've done a play there and they've had photographic exhibits and it's, and so people are always looking for there. We had a book on the, on the feud and then we've had stuff on, there was a big flood in Moorhead in the thirties that, which is part of the reason we don't have as many historical buildings as some of our neighboring towns, because a lot of it was destroyed in the flood. So on your Facebook page that I follow, you often have your different booksellers will have a little blurb about a book that they're reading or that, that they've read recently or would recommend in their favorite genres. And it's sort of like a shelf talker that, you know, that you would see visually, like if you went into a bookstore, but it's on social media. So do you find that those help steer readers to the booksellers that identify with the genre that they like the most? We certainly have booksellers who have a following. Nona is one of them. And people come in and they don't care what I've read. They want to know what Nona's reading. <laughs> But where's Nona? Which I love. I love that that's, but I think all of our booksellers, I mean, we have a bookseller, Nick is, and people come and they want to talk about graphic novels and he's very knowledgeable. And actually he buys my graphic novel section. He does a great job. He's a great bookseller. He knows his stuff. What else do you have going on in the bookstore? Do you have any reading groups or things like that? We do. And we've had to take them virtual. So anybody anywhere can join. They're very cleverly named the morning group and the evening group. (laughs) (laughs) And the evening group now meets on Zoom in the morning, but it's still the same group. <laughs> and then we've had a nonfiction group. So those are our reading groups that meet. And then we have, we have a couple of book clubs. Like we have a subscription club called Twisted Sisterhood. And so one of our booksellers loves those dark and twisty thrillers, you know, like Gone Girl. And she had this whole following. And so we started a subscription and it's done really well where you get a dark and twisty novel once a month. And usually there's um, a coupon and sometimes there's a dark chocolate in there or there's a coupon for a cup of coffee or some extra goodies. And we've worked with some publishers who have helped us give away some cool freebies and books and things. So So if if someone wanted to do that and they don't live in Moorhead, do y'all ship that kind of thing? Like if someone's interested in a twisty? You can sign up on our website. Go um, to our website under our books. There's a link, a page for the Twisted Sisterhood. And they can just click and subscribe. Well, you mentioned about how COVID has changed a lot of things related to the coffee shop that's that's part of the bookstore i know in louisville when libraries were closed they're doing curbside pickup but they're still not fully open to the public i know that a lot of our local booksellers were kind of scrambling like trying to find not just books that people wanted but also 
puzzles and games and craft kits and just things to keep people occupied since they're spending more time at home. So have you all had to change your buying in the last six, seven, eight months because of COVID? Oh, absolutely. Obviously, we're selling a lot more puzzles, a lot more games, and we're doing obviously a lot more shipping. I'm still doing curbside. We had actually just gone live with our website where you could buy books. We had not done that. We had done that a long time ago, and that's not really our business. I mean, our business is really face-to-face people. And so we actually sort of on a whim had had signed up to work with a a company that's doing fulfillment for online book sales, independent bookstores, um, bookshop. And so the timing was really good, kind of freaky. It's been great because we didn't actually have to do the, the manual shipping of that. So you're still part of the bookshop family? Yeah, we like bookshop. I know some bookstores, they they do their own shipping through their website. We don't really have the person power to do that. We did some of that when we were closed. Retail was closed to the public. We certainly had lots of calls and we were doing some of that directly. And that is grueling work. It's just the juggling of it all. Phone and, and getting things boxed and getting it to the credit cards run and and all of that. So we're much better at it now. And we've, we're using technology a little better than we were at first, but I think everybody's had to get better at it because it wasn't sustainable. Many independent bookstores, you know, have had to find a niche, something to make them stand out when people can use, you know, some online sellers that make shopping online so easy. So I know that you also sell some other things. What are some of the added value services that your bookstore has nurtured in the community? I know you have some other things going on. We do. Well, we, we carry a lot of local pottery from all over Kentucky and some local jewelry artists who do some just amazing, amazing things. And so a few different crafts. We have local honey and soaps. And then we have a small yarn section that we've had probably for about six or seven years. So it's a full yarn shop. And actually we do, we do knitting projects and we did knitting classes and all of that. Those are tricky to do online, but we did just have a, a great big event that was very successful. And I was sort of surprised, but. So how did the idea of adding fiber arts to the store, how did that come about? Well, I or was should... a knitter when I moved back to Moorhead, however many years ago it was, and there was no place to buy yarn. I mean, I would have to go to Lexington and there weren't many knitters in Moorhead. And people kept saying to me, you should open a yarn shop. And then one of the professors at the university who does fiber arts, she said, I really want to teach the knitting classes, couldn't you just carry a shelf? And so I brought in, um, I worked with a yarn company in Nebraska that works with a small family-owned business and it's a great company. I can't, So I just had a shelf for, for, I don't know, three or four years. And then we are a big space and a lot of bookstores can carry a lot of what we call sidelines, which are non-book items. And that got tiring. You know, it's knickknacks and purses and scarves and head, you know, and it's hard to buy. It's hard to know. It's hard to care. So I don't know, kind of on a whim, I thought, okay, I do know yarn. Let's just carry this. And what was interesting is I really thought knitters would come out of the woodwork, but they didn't. I mean, people crocheted and certainly we have tons of quilters here. So it's been really fun because I've taught a gazillion knitting classes and it's all like 101 and I've watched people start with a cast on and in fact, at this event, we had limited tickets and there were 35 knitters and they showed off some of the things that they had knit. And it was just like, wow. I mean, I was, I was so proud of them. 
So um, it's not a huge section. I curate that one pretty hard because it has to be good. I'd like to work with American wools whenever I can. You know, it's all natural fibers. There's no acrylic or any synthetics. We work with actually a few uh, women-owned independent dyers. And so we have some kind of cool stuff and it's been really fun. It's an interesting creative thing and it actually goes really well with the books. And I, I should also credit, I, I sat at a national meeting next to a woman who owns a bookstore, fiber store in, in Wisconsin. And that was, she's like, no, you should totally do it. And I was like, I had pretty much like, I'm not doing that. And it's her fault. <laughs> I, saw, I saw her a couple of years ago and I said, you know, this is your fault. <laughs> I think she said, who are you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What is Sheep Out? I see oh. that on your site. Okay. So this was our big event. So we started a few years ago. One of my knitters had seen, I don't know, some yarn shop had had what they called a sheep over. And people like spent the night and knitted all night and did in their pajamas. I don't know what they did. And they were like, we should do that. I thought, we're not sheeping over. <laughs> How about we just sheep in? So on a Sunday afternoon when we're closed, we sold tickets, uh, had a huge food spread, Fun drinks, specialty cocktail called Sheer Delight. <laughs> I love a pun. I love a pun. We had sales and we had, um, and there were party favors and door prizes and a fashion show. And, and then we would have inspiration projects and we put like bundles together for people to try to make some of these projects. And we sell out, like people want to know when the tickets are going on sale. I mean, they go on sale on January 2nd when we open. Like this year, we only did 35 tickets, but in the past we did, it's 50 tickets and they sell out in like a day. So this year we did it virtually. So instead of sheep in, it was sheep out. <laughs> so they picked up their kit and it had a little project and, and party favors and all the makings for them to make. I always make this massive Kahlua brownie trifle thing and, and a punch bowl. And so they had the makings to make their own little independent one. They maybe had some makings for their own sheer delight. Then they, we Zoomed and we had a virtual knitting party sale and it was really fun. It seems like, now, and, and I've lived in Louisville my whole life, right? So I've never lived anywhere else. But it, when I go to smaller towns in Kentucky or, or just anywhere, it, I think it's kind of cool. And one of the differences, or at least it seems like this way to me, you know, in Louisville where there's so many more people, You'll have a bookshop that's a bookshop and a yarn shop that's a yarn shop. And I guess it's sort of by necessity in some ways that smaller towns, one business can, like you said, like wear a lot of hats within that business. It seems like it would be kind of freeing because you're not limited to just one thing. You can kind of think outside the box and do more creative things sometimes because you have your hands in so many different areas. Do you find that to be the case? I think that's very true. I mean, part of it is that because rent is so high mm -hmm. and you have a small space. And so you can imagine that being in a movie theater, an, an old movie theater, which is massive, like I don't have the book traffic to support that just as a bookstore. I mean, books are still, they're still the majority of my business by a lot. But still, I mean, that's, that's a lot of space for books. And so... Yeah, I think it gives it gives us all kinds of opportunities to be creative and do some different things. And what's interesting, it seems like when one thing zigs, the other thing zags. And so it just, it seems to work pretty well. 
Now, that you know, that is notorious. And down the road, we do have a Bible entire store. <laughs> a Bible well, entire store? Amy, I can't believe you don't know this. No, I did know about that, although I'd kind of forgotten. But when we first moved to Moorhead... And we were looking for some furniture for our house. We asked people around, like, where should we go to look at furniture? And somebody told us about this place. They go, oh, down at the tobacco warehouse. Well, we thought it was an old tobacco warehouse that they had turned into a furniture store until we went in and they had all the furniture in the front. But if you wandered too far in the back, they were actually drying tobacco. Like, it still was a tobacco warehouse. I know. (laughs) How far is the target? You know, because, like, that's sort of my... uh, An hour. Oh my gosh. Okay. So I'm like, I need to be within 10 minutes of a target or. I first moved here, you know, I had lived in Nashville for 16 years and it seemed like every two weeks, my, I mean, my husband's from Seattle. And so he'd lived in Seattle, Los Angeles and Nashville. And so now he lives in Moorhead. And I will say this was his idea (laughs) to move back. Although we're still happy with that decision, but About every two weeks, we would drive to Lexington and get our city fix. We would just felt we had to get things and we had to do things. And we really don't go to Lexington very often. You sort of find, there's a lot of stuff you don't really need. And maybe in some ways, because I know COVID, I mean, I'm not going anywhere. So I think in some ways for me, COVID has helped me go, yeah, I don't, I I just think it's interesting. And that's one of the things I like about my family has gone on some trips this past year because we wanted to stay in state, but it's been kind of interesting, you know, to go to these places and smaller towns and see what life is like. I mean, it's, it's very cool, even though I do like being 10 minutes from a target, at least at this point, it is neat to go see how other communities live and that they can have uh, tobacco and furniture and (laughs) tires and Bibles and yarn and books and all sorts of other things inside businesses and that it's creative and fun and it works. So I think that's very neat. We have enjoyed learning about Coffee Tree Books with Susan. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're all going to talk about what we're reading. We are back with Susan Thomas from Coffee Tree Books and with Carrie. And Carrie, I want to know what you're reading. There are two audiobooks I just finished up. I'm not sure what got into me. I found an audiobook. It's called Born Standing Up, A Comic's Life by Steve Martin. So it's written by him and narrated by him. And I have always enjoyed Steve Martin. And it and this was a pretty short audiobook. I want to say between three and five hours. So he talks about the 10 years that he did stand up and how he started and then why he decided to stop doing stand up. So it was really interesting. He also plays banjo in this audiobook, and I like banjo. So it was kind of a sweet spot of, you know, a comedian I like and music I like, and then just hearing about his backstory. One of the things that I felt like this connected for me is I have read Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers book. In that book, he talks about how, you know, a lot of the times we think about people who become famous, like the Beatles or athletes who are like super skilled at whatever they do. And to the public, it's like, oh, it just happened overnight. But there's sort of this magic number. It's like 10,000 hours that somebody has to practice before they're really, really good at something. And so listening to the Steve Martin 
audiobook kind of reminded me of that concept because Steve Martin, you know, in his early years, he would go from bar to bar, from comedy place to comedy place and do like three or four shows a night every night. So I enjoyed this. And then after I finished that one, I was sort of like, well, I don't want to listen to anything really heavy. So I found another audiobook that's called The New One, Painfully True Stories from a Reluctant Dad by Mike Birbiglia. And he is also a comedian. He wrote a book and also there was a movie called Sleepwalk With Me. He has a, a sleep disorder where he basically, he has to wear gloves and have somebody zip him into a sleeping bag at night because his dreams are so violent that, you know, like he threw himself in his sleep at a two-story window. So I knew about Mike Birbiglia before I landed on this book. In this book in particular, the new one, he recorded it with his wife, who is a poet, about their decision to have their daughter, Una. And he did not want to have children, but he agreed to have a child, which I don't think is too far off from a lot of men in the world who are like, eh, if you want to, okay. And so this audiobook, it was funny, of course, because Mike Birbiglia is a comedian, but it was also, you know, kind of sad in places and, and bittersweet that his decision and his wife's decision in some ways turned out better than what they might have imagined, but they also had to give up some things which isn't always fun or easy to do so anyway I, I highly recommend those again that was another one I think it was between three and five hours so relatively short but if you feel like you need a comedian fix I guess those might be two you want to check out Mike Barbiglia uh, book I heard he and his wife interviewed on Fresh Air by Terry Gross and it was really oh, interesting yeah. and I also saw him he was in Louisville and I went to see one of them and he was really good yeah, yeah. he's he's funny Susan what have you been reading? Well, I just finished a couple of things. I finished The Prophets by Robert Jones Jr. And I can't recommend it enough. In fact, I emailed my Penguin rep and said, I wish I were a better writer so I could write a blurb that was worthy of this book. <laughs> I don't know. It, it was amazing. It's set on a plantation and it's about love, all different kinds of love. And it is, it is just beautiful and hard. And I followed that up with a book called We Begin at the End by Chris Whitaker. And that, it's not out yet, but I think it's going to be a big book. So you'll see that come around. They're comparing the main character to Scout from To Kill a Mockingbird, which, you know. Oh, wow. Publishers like to do that, though. It's about a little girl. It's a it's a, a girl and her brother, and their mother is killed. And it's it's the mystery behind it. And it, it unwinds, and you just don't really see where this book is going. I mean, it's twists and turns, and it was a very fast read. So it was it was an interesting follow-up after. The Prophets is so beautifully written that I just, I've had to read it really slowly. And this, uh, then the next one, I just picked up and powered through. And then I'm listening to uh, Amari and the Night Brothers by B.B. Alston, which is middle grade. And the number one on the indie next list for kids is the list that um, booksellers send in their picks. And they compile a list. And this was the, the top one for kids for winter. And it is, it's it's all the things. It's it's magic and a girl uh, from the projects. And I don't even know how to explain it, but it's really good. And I, again, I think this is going to be one of those kid books that kind of takes off. That's awesome. So I've added all three of those. You mentioned the one hasn't come out yet, but the other two, are they like relatively new books? Oh, yes. They're both, okay, both of Mari and the Nye Brothers. It probably came out last Tuesday. Oh, okay. So really new. The Prophets was, it's the number one for January on the adult 
in the next list. I don't normally read that way. It just sort of happened. The Prophets was also the cover review um, at the New on the New York Times book review last week. Do you find that you read a lot of arcs or things, you know, just to kind of keep ahead of what might be coming out? Or do you find that you do more backlist reading? Well, I go in phases and we've sort of laughed during COVID. I was talking to a friend and apparently it's a sign of anxiety if you reread because you need to know how it's going to end. Oh. And that it's a comfort thing to reread books. To go back to places you know and people you know. And and she had been rereading all year long. And I have not. I'm not really a rereader occasionally, but not very often. But what I have done is I, well, I started during 2020. I'm I'm kind of in the middle of it. Reading Louise Erdrich from the beginning, like in in order. Because some of them I've read, some of them I haven't. Like, I know it's going to be good. You know, I know when I read Louise Erdrich that it's going to be good. You need a guarantee that you're going to enjoy it. Yes. And I, and I thought I decided that was my anxiety reading in 2020 was was reading Louise Erdrich. And I have not been disappointed because she is such an incredible writer. And it's been funny because I've read stuff in between and I'll pick up something and I'll think, hmm, writing's not very good. And I'll be like, oh, no, no. It's just that I've been reading Louise. <laughs> I'm just let me just get into this book and give this poor guy a chance. <laughs> Well, Amy, what have you been reading? So I just finished a graphic novel called Good Talk, A Memoir and Conversations by Mira Jacob. And, you know, as you know, I don't read a lot of graphic novels, but I had heard about this and it sounded intriguing to me. But it was published in 2019. It won the National Book Critics Award for Autobiography that year. And Mira Jacob had previously written a novel a few years prior to this. And she's the daughter of Indian immigrants, but she was born in the United States. And she married a Jewish man, and they have a son who would be considered mixed race. So the book starts off with the author taking a walk with her son, who is about six, and he begins asking questions about race. And he has seen some current events on the news or elsewhere, and he asks, his mother if white people are afraid of brown people and then he asks if his daddy is afraid of them and so these questions by her son make her question different events in her life that have made her think about race she talks about how she has darker skin that then is considered beautiful in indian culture and her family was always concerned that she would have trouble finding a husband and then she talks about instances when she was a girl and how she was made to feel less than American because she looked different than white people. And she talks about how her race has affected her getting work as a writer, both from the perspective of her family's belittling her career, because they think that it's not a valid career choice, to the publishing industry being dominated mainly by white males. But from there, she takes the lens back farther and she shows the political climate that's taking place behind these experiences. And that culminates to a more modern day when the political rhetoric by leaders has made her son scared and how recent elections can sort of tear away at families by dividing them. So she uses conversations with her Jewish in-laws who plan to vote for a particular presidential candidate who espoused xenophobic rhetoric. I'm not going to say that person's name, but we might be able to figure it out. But I think that this is something that many families can relate to all across the country to some extent, maybe not about race, but about climate change or reproductive rights or sexual orientation. So Mira Jacob and her son both felt 
that by her in-laws wanting to vote for this particular person, it made them feel like they didn't really care about them. The graphic art in this book is a little different than the ones that I have read in that it's more like a collage. She uses real color photographs as the background, and on top she sort of imposed black and white figures of herself, her family, other figures in the story. And they're not exactly cartoon-like. They're more realistic, but they're cut out and pasted on, sort of like a paper doll almost. And then she has little conversation bubbles above. But I would say that this goes to the top of my list of some of my favorite graphic novels. It was completely engaging and I had trouble putting it down. And it was also relatable to me in many ways, even though I'm white and I don't have the same challenges that this author had, but it made me examine some things in my own life. I mean, she talks about some examples of times when she's been made to feel like the other, in quotation marks. And there were things that I wouldn't have thought of. And it's made me examine my own behavior and have I been guilty of some of these things. And undoubtedly, I probably have unknowingly. And so I appreciated her showing me how that made her feel. My only complaint, and this doesn't have anything to do with the author or even the content, but it's that I read this as an ebook and I don't recommend that. There were several pages that you really needed to be able to see the whole double page spread for it to make total sense. And I didn't have that ability. And so I had to scroll back and forth, which wasn't ideal. So I highly recommend reading the hard copy of this one if you decide to give it a go. I've never read a graphic novel memoir before but i enjoyed this one quite a bit so yeah i looked at the cover now you know like there's some graphic novels you can tell just looking at the cover that it's a graphic novel but when i looked at that one i would not have thought it was a graphic novel well i actually didn't know it was a graphic novel there was some buzz about this book when it came out at the time and i remember that and i remember thinking oh i'd like to read that book i did not realize it was a graphic novel until i actually downloaded it from the library and then i'm like oh <laughs> but by that time i'd already had it and so I, you know i was going to read it like that but i would definitely recommend getting the hard copy for that one Cool. I've already put that on my list. Y'all have like totally given me way too many books to put on my list in this episode. All right. Well, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to ask Susan her top five. We are back with Susan Thomas and we're going to ask her her top five. So as I mentioned, my family decided during 2020 that we were going to stay in Kentucky, you know, visit some places. We went to Land Between the Lakes and Cumberland Falls. So what is the top thing someone coming for a visit to Moorhead, Kentucky should visit besides Coffee Tree Books and why? I think the Kentucky Folk Art Center. We have a really great collection of Kentucky folk art. And Kentucky folk artists, some of the really important artists in that. And I just think it's a beautiful building. They've redone it. It's the old grocery store. It's a great collection. It's a really lovely space. And I think it's a chance to experience some art that you maybe haven't seen. I would second that. I, I always liked that museum and Moorhead. Yeah. And if you're an outdoorsy person, Cave Run Lake is pretty nice too. It's a, um, yeah, I sort of say it's second to like, you know, the Shell Toe Trace. It's a great, it's, you know, you've got, we've got the top of the trail and you can start it and then be inspired to hike all the way down to Tennessee. So question number two, there has been an increase in people's interest in beekeeping for the last several years and you keep bees. So what's the most challenging thing about that for you? 
everything. <laughs> this is, I think, the hardest thing ever. I think it's constantly changing right now. I have talked to other beekeepers and several of us have, have sort of said, we've done this for like 10 years. Why do we still feel so stupid? And I think it's hard. It's a true test of patience. I think I, I do it because it's, I'm not very temperamentally suited to keeping bees. I have to be there when they're ready. I've laughed and said it's my spiritual practice. <laughs> and I think everything about it is hard. So for those of us who know like nothing about beekeeping, the way I envision beekeeping is the bees do their thing. And then every once in a while I go and get honey. So it sounds like it's a lot more complicated than that. You know, I probably, no, I mean, and I think part of it is I was sort of jaded. My first few years of keeping it, I, I sort of had success with neglect. I mean, I didn't really do much and I had all this success. I'm like, look at all this honey. This is easy. I don't know what you people are whining about. But, you know, as you're trying to like diagnose, like what's going on with a hop, I've had issues with queens and having to requeen and, and, and the timing and catching it when it's right to sort of read what you're, what the ladies are doing and to see what's going on and everything's very slow and you can't just fix it. I, I take that back. I do know somebody who kept bees and when things were going great, it was like, ah, it's great. But then when there was a problem, I mean, it sounds like what you're saying. It's like when there's a problem or when there's something going on, it can be time consuming and frustrating to try to figure out what it is and how to fix it. Right. And you're trying things and you're, you're watching and you're, I mean, I won't lie. It's, it's a little scary at times, you know, you think you got the rhythm of it, but bees are still, bees will still sting you, <laughs> you know, and you get stung. There's just no getting around that. It's just part of it, but I don't know. You have to move slowly and you have to be patient. You have to watch them and you have to figure out what's going on with them and you kind of listen to what they're telling you when it goes well. I mean, it is, it is really rewarding. Have you read the book, The Murmur of Bees by Sophia Segovia? No, I do read a lot of bee books, but I haven't read that one. It's fiction. It's translated from the Spanish. It's a Mexican author. It doesn't have to do anything with technical bee stuff, but bees have a major role in that book. You might want to check it out. On my list. I will say I loved The Honey Bus. I don't know if anybody read The Honey Bus. Oh, no. I have, I've never heard of that one. It came out, I think it came out in paperback maybe last year. And it's a memoir of a woman whose grandfather, she grew up with her grandfather keeping bees. And so it's a little glass castle-ish, you know, her home life wasn't ideal, but her grandfather was this steady presence and she would keep bees with him. It's, it's cool. It's a good book. So here's a little known fact about me and my family, but my father raised bees when I was growing up. And in fact, he invented a type of honey extractor that's been patented. So we always had bees. We had beehives in our backyard when I was growing up, which I hated when I was a kid because I like to run around in the grass without my shoes on. And it seemed like, I don't know if this is the case. It seemed like to me that we had a lot more bees around our house than other people. And I would inevitably, you know, step on one and get stung and all that stuff. All right. Question number three, you mentioned that you had lived in Nashville before moving back to Moorhead. Having experienced both, what is one of the top things you love about living in a small town over a large city? Well, I think it's just, you know, as we talked a little bit earlier, just about the people. I mean, I don't know. It's just, it's a tighter, there's something about knowing the community. I mean, knowing the mayor and feeling like you're more part of, of the community. You're not just one more person in a big city. I don't know. I don't miss the city. And when we go back, 
I'm ready to come home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even going to Lexington, it doesn't take long for me to be done. I got so I really enjoyed living in a small town while we were there. And when we first moved to Louisville, I had a really hard time transitioning to moving to a larger town. And it took me almost a year, I think, to get acclimated because, you know, we bought a house in a housing development and the houses were so close together. And I was used to having like an acre of land around me. I don't know. Everything just felt like too close. So it took me a little while, but I enjoyed living in this in a small town and I wasn't sure that I would, you know, but I, I grew up in a medium sized city, like 75,000 people, somewhere between the two, you know. Well, we live yeah. on a farm now and I can't see a neighbor. So it, that's part of it for me too. It's just that there's just too many people. Yeah. It would be hard to live that close, I think, again. So question number four, I'm apparently asking all of the, the biological questions, but you, <laughs> <laughs> you keep goats. Goats can have fun personalities. And so I'm wondering why you chose goats over other domesticated animals. And do you have a top favorite goat story? Well, I chose goats because I wanted to make goat cheese. And so I keep Nubian goats and they have the highest butterfat content. And so in my estimation, they make the best cheese. So I breed once a year, usually, and we get to have baby goats around the farm you know, all spring and summer and we milk her all summer and it's a fun time. So that's why I chose goats. I don't know that my goats have gotten into much mischief. They're, they're boring goats. They're not like hopping on stuff and eating weird stuff. You know, they, there are a lot of myths about goats. You know, goats don't really eat weird stuff if you feed them. I do kind of, you know, pamper spoil my goats so they have very little to complain about so I only have two right now I had seven this summer but I had um it was a, it's been a hard year so oh but your goats are lovable oh they are they're good so they're a little free range they're pretty free range right now especially because I only have two so they can't get in too much trouble and my garden is fenced in see it's easier to fence in a garden than to fence in a goat. It's easier to fence out a goat. They are pretty bad. Like, I mean, you can be feeding them something great. And if they look over your shoulder and they see kale, they're like, eh, whatever. <laughs> no. So you have made goat cheese? Oh yeah. I make goat cheese all summer. Oh, wow. I get a fair bit of milk. Usually I get, you know, a quart to two quarts of milk a day. So like every four days or four or five days I can make cheese. So yeah, it makes a ton of cheese. That sounds amazing. I feel like we need to have another episode about how do you make goat cheese because that's fascinating. I, you though, like, I mean, you can make it really fancy and there are some, there are some great books about it. Goat song, Brad Kessler. I totally recommend it, but I really make pretty simple, straight up goat cheese and it's stupid easy. I mean, people are like, I want to come over so you can teach me. And it's like, mm, you just sort of do it. It just, it just sits and, and become, you know, you put the culture in and it happens and you drain it. Hmm. But the part of it is that you can't make it with goat monkey get to the store because it has to be unpasteurized. You know, once you, you know, treat the milk and all of that, it doesn't break down as well. I don't know if it has to be unpasteurized, but I think they, they ultra pasteurize goat milk. Like if you get organic milk, you can't make cheese out of it because it's ultra pasteurized. All right. Question number five. Coffee Tree Books is a full family affair, as you've mentioned. So what has been the top hardest thing about running a family business and what is one of the top best things about it well you know the best thing and the hardest thing is are probably the same is that you're always kind of collaborating and oh let's talk about this and let's have a project and let's let's brainstorm and and plan 
you know, which I love to do and think about it and, you know, let's try something new on the menu. Let's rearrange the store and put this bookshelf here and try, let's do displays on this, that, and the other thing. But then that's also, you know, I have to sometimes tell my husband, um, I'm done. <laughs> so your husband is working in the store now too? I've been working there for a while. My parents have never been involved in the bookstore. They did the coffee shop. So that's never been an issue. Everybody had their own little kingdom. So it was really easy. You know, nobody tried it on anybody's toes. But when COVID happened and my parents are in the, what I call the danger zone, they turned it all over to us completely. So we've been running both now since March. But even still, I mean, we would still collaborate on things all the time. And so, you know, sometimes I'd have to tell my mom, you know, I need to not talk about it. We need to talk about something else. Cause, yeah. Um, you know, you just hit that moment where you're like, oh, I'm stopping. I don't, I don't think I care right now. <laughs> well, does it ever feel like it's all consuming? Like with other people who have jobs that are not related. I mean, they come home and they talk a little bit about their day and then, you know, have dinner or whatever. But because you're working with your family, do you feel like sometimes that's all you talk about because it's a shared thing? Um... It can be, but no, not really. You got to have boundaries. Being self-employed, you have to have boundaries. If you don't set those boundaries up, it will kill you. I mean, mm. when I first got into this, someone gave me a book. You know, I have a book for all occasions. Because you know, I'm a <laughs> bookseller. And it was called The E-Myth. And the, it was the myth of the entrepreneur. And the whole mm. idea was um, that most independent businesses don't close because people aren't making money. They close because people are working themselves to death and they look around and they think, mm, no, that, I don't want to do this anymore. Mm. And so, you, you know, you really have to not work yourself to death and you have to decide what can I delegate? Where do I stop? I mean, you're never done. So you just have to say, this is when I work and this is when I'm finished. And honestly, in some respects, COVID has been good for me to be able to, to carve those boundaries out even more distinctly because it's really easy to, to just take on too much because mm. you don't have the kind of fixed schedule where you're working for someone else. You know, you yeah. can't, I can't do that because I'm working. I can always do that. I'm the boss. But so, right. And so, and so pretty much, you know, we, you know, we keep hours and I mean, certainly, you know, it's different than other businesses. We get a text at 6.30 in the morning that says, um, I just woke up or um, I don't have a key uh, to open you know, the coffee shop. And so you end up jumping in. Those are, I think yeah. those are the biggest challenges is managing yeah. time and setting boundaries. Well, Susan, it has been so great catching up with you. And we uh, had a great time talking to you. We love featuring some independent bookstores around the region. And we are so glad that we were able to talk to you and feature yours today. Well, it was fun. I'm glad you, you asked. Thanks for joining us today. For show notes for any episode, please go to our blog site at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. Follow us on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover and on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to and when new episodes air. If you enjoy our show, spread the word and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other listeners find us. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots, community-based radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts.